Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Massachusetts' four confusing ballot questions are driving up voter interest for the November 8th election. Plus, Bristol County's controversial sheriff of 25 years is facing a real challenger. And election workers across the nation are leaving their jobs in droves. Will their exits greatly impact voting this year? We're talking politics for the full hour with the Mass Politics Profs. Joining me remotely, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Aaron. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Louise Jimenez, also an Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston. Hi, Louise. Hello. Thank you for the invitation. And Shannon Jenkins, Political Science Professor at UMass Dartmouth. Welcome back, Shannon. Hi, Callie. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. Now, let's start with the ballot questions that are so confusing. Let's take a listen to just some of the rhetoric that's out there. Here's the one about a tax hike. Politicians are pushing a tax hike on the November ballot. That makes no sense. That was question one. Here we go, question two. According to an expert study, if question two passes, dental costs could go up by as much as 38% for Massachusetts businesses and families. That means higher costs whenever you go to the dentist. Now, question three is about alcohol, but where the one that's really attracted quite a bit of attention is question four, which is about a new law um, that was passed by the legislature that would institute driver's licenses for undocumented residents of Massachusetts. Here it is. I spent over 30 years working to keep the public safe. I'm voting yes on question four, and so are my law enforcement colleagues from across Massachusetts. All right, I just wanted to uh, set the stage there uh, for all of you because uh, according to Secretary of State Bill Galvin, what voters are really paying attention to are the ballot questions. That's what's driving them to the polls as opposed to candidates running for some of the other offices, which is interesting. Uh, that would include the governor's race. Um, and he calculates that by the number of mail-in ballots that were requested, 1.1 million, about 150,000 had been returned. This was uh, a few days ago. And he said that suggests to him that they're taking their time to grapple with the ballot questions that are significant and uh, campaigned on heavily. I will say here, all of my colleagues and we here at Under the Radar have done quite a bit of work on the ballot questions. And there is intense interest, according to uh, the numbers that we've seen on our website. What say you, Shannon? So I'm going to go a little bit meta here, right? I mean, I'm a political scientist, and I still haven't quite figured out how I'm going to vote on a couple of these ballot questions. Um, and so, you know, I just wonder about how the average voter decides. And I want to highlight in particular some of the research on this. Um, Josh Dyke, who's up at UMass Lowell, and um, Edward Lasher have a book about this. And, and basically what they find is, you know, that initiatives 
increase the scope of conflict and enhance, in fact, the role of partisanship and voting um, on, an, on, on all sorts of elections when there are initiatives on the ballot, but they don't really increase sort of citizens' engagement with government, and in fact, they lead to declining trust. Um, and so I think, you know, we're seeing sort of that play out here, like people are interested but confused, um, and I don't think that's a good recipe for um, making decisions about complicated issues or having um, voters feel good about their uh, capacity to, uh, the state's capacity, I guess I should say, to sort of legislate. So I'm not sure all of these ballot questions are great vehicles or this is a good vehicle for for deciding on these issues because they are in fact very confusing well this is why we did a whole segment on question three which has to do with alcohol sales in the state louise because as i said through our segment i was confused wow <laughs> what say you yeah no I'm, <clears throat> question three is is definitely confusing although i think the the one about the dentists uh is probably the most because it's such a technical question um but the one that uh that I know most about in terms of how people are feeling or how, how people like political behavior and so on is the one about uh, driver's licenses and that undocumented folks could have them. Now, the problem with this question is that beyond this asking people or not about this question, people are going to have strong feelings, most of which are based on misinformation. That is, they think that if people have driver's licenses that are not uh, um, you know, legal immigrants, uh, that they're going to be able to vote, that they're going to be some kind of nefarious purposes that they're going to use or something. So it's like you're an inviting crime and that sort of thing, when in fact, it does none of those things. Uh, and it also, people don't realize that right now, you know, you can't get a driver's license if you are undocumented, which means that those folks can drive out there or do drive out there without a driver's license, which means that insurance costs go up for everyone because if they get in an accident, right, they don't have insurance. So that's already complicated. But the fact that it's the way it's worded, because they already passed a law in the state. Uh, and so now the wording of the uh, is asking whether that law should stay or not. Um, so if you vote yes, it means no. And if you vote no, it means yes. Uh, it's very, very confusing. And, and I wonder how that's going to play out. Well, the ads running that show the law enforcement say vote yes on four. Right. Because they say, you know, this, I've been in law, as that guy said, in law enforcement, and I think it's safer. Oh, right. Well, some of them, yes. Yeah. Some of them are. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's, I, again, I'm, I'm referring um, all listeners to, we have massive amounts of information. When we reached out to people who are nonpartisan researchers, please uh, go to our website, uh, WGBH News, uh, if you are still confused, and read it and read it again, which is what I had to do before I, I went to the polls. Erin. Um, no, I'm going to be a bit of a contrarian. I think it's great we're voting on issue one and issue four. I mean, these are values questions. They're ideological questions. And I, I don't think question four is that confusing. If you want to keep the law that undocumented people um, can have a driver's license, vote yes. If you don't want to keep that law, vote no. Um, but I think one and four are emblematic of, you know, the best of these ballot uh, initiative and referenda, because they are ideological. It speaks to your views on taxation, who belongs in a community, public safety. Um, but I agree with the panel that, you know, teeth and booze, 
I have some experience with, but not policy experience. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, you know, th those two are very technocratic. They don't belong on the ballot, but I'm all about issue one and four because I think it speaks to voters' values. Well, here's the other thing I need to note about four. Um, uh, much of the ballot information, you know, those those booklets that come out to help voters uh, begin to think about how they might want to vote, uh, ballot uh, question four was left off. So yes. there are some people who will, sent out. Yep. Yes, who will arrive at their polling unless they've done some other research and say, what is this? I've never seen this question before. I want to see the drop off. I bet a lot of people will leave it blank. Yeah. Um, but, I'm, you know, I love that booklet. It's like <laughs> it reminds me of the old school SATs, yeah. like that booklet. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, but I'm how many really rely on it. I just want to point out you are an academic. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, I mean, listen, I didn't enjoy the SATs. I'm not that big of a nerd. But... <laughs> okay. All right. Can, can I just say, I I see Aaron's point about uh, uh, that, you know, this speaks to your values and so on, but it it is the reason why we're voting on this, the driver's license issue is because people, you know, there's a group of people that resented this it already went through the legislature. They already discussed this. They already talked about the safety of it and so on and so forth. Um, and when you have a ballot initiative like this, I think it's it's easier to have misinformation about it, which makes me nervous. I, I see your point. I just, I think it I makes me- I see yours. Nervous. That's compelling. Yeah, it, it makes me nervous that people can then vote to, to you know, even though these these things have already been adjudicated, like we have already had this whole process. But now people can can revoke that. So, Luis, can I can I expand on that too? I, I'd say that also expands to question one. And you know, looking at ballot question one ads, I found myself yelling at the TV. That's just not true, mm. right? Mm. Um, and so, right, you see, um, in both of those questions that are values questions because they invoke values that are deeply held, um, they can be manipulated. I think more easily. Whereas two and three. That doesn't arise passion, so it's hard to manipulate. Mm. But those one and four, I think, are really subject to some misinformation and manipulation. But I don't think that's unique, right? Mm. Like, that's true in all politics. Yeah, candidates run um, misinformation. Candidates run ads yeah. that are manipulative. So I think, you know, I, I mean, I think our conversation shows that it's nuanced. Um, but, you know, turning, I have confidence in voters on issue one and issue four that I don't on two and three because of how technical they are. All right. Well, I will just note that uh, our contributor and uh, Boston Globe columnist Shirley Leong has done quite a bit of work on question one, one as we have here at GBH on our on our show, Talking Politics, and on other programs. We have a landing page with all of this if people need to see more. Also, want to point to a report by our Chris Burrell, investigative reporter who referenced the law, uh, this is regarding question four and the undocumented and driver's license, referenced the law in New York. There are many other states who have passed a similar law, which shows, the data shows, there is a steep decline in unlicensed driving since the state put in the law, meaning there are fewer people on the road without uh, some kind of uh, proper uh, identification. Uh, so there's been a drop in that, which has increased safety quite a bit. Again, that report with all of the data is at the WGBH news site. Now, let me turn to one of one of the races that has drawn some attention, and, and rightly so. Uh, we've said that the ballot questions have driven the voters uh, with a great amount of interest, but there are uh, many folks up running, and um, 
But in Bristol County, Sheriff Tom Hodgson, um, who has been there for 25 years, is quite controversial. You may remember him from some of the initiatives that he put in place deemed illegal at his uh, jailhouse. Uh, but nevertheless, he's been an incumbent for 25 years, and he has now a real opponent. He's a Republican. Um, a Democrat, Attleboro Mayor Paul Haro, is trying to unseat him. He has a master's degree in criminology from the University of Pennsylvania and another in international relations. So this is a, considered a first real race, Shannon, um, real competition for the sheriff who's just, you know, no, but he's run unopposed, actually, a couple of times. So um, what do you think? So I will note he had one other sort of quality challenger, not the previous election cycle, two election cycles ago, um, and that was State Representative John Quinn, who um, challenged him but lost uh, narrowly. Um, and part of the reason why I think Quinn lost is he represented, you know, Dartmouth, New Bedford, the, the southern part of the district. Um, but Bristol County extends pretty far, right, up into Attleboro, Taunton, um, and, and, and Quinn didn't do well there. Haro, on the other hand, right, has a, has a base of power. Um, out of those sort of more northern populous cities. Um, and he's been also campaigning pretty hard in the southern parts of the county. So I do think um, he represents a significant challenge uh, to Hodgson. Um, and this has definitely become polarized on party lines in a way that I think sheriff's races maybe aren't always because um, because they're low visibility, people don't know much about it. Um, but Hodgson has tried to raise his profile by hitching himself to the Trump wagon. Um, you know, uh, maybe a few years back, um, there was a story where he he attends a local church down here, Sheriff Hodgson, and they put out a flyer um, a, a, for immigrants uh, to help support immigrants in the community. Um, and Hodgson um, basically ratted out the church to Stephen Miller. Um, he's showed, gone down to the Trump uh, White House, you know, several times to do photo ops. So he's really sort of hitched himself to the more extreme uh, part of the 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 GOP in the state and nationally. And so it'll be interesting to see how this race plays out in the changing sort of partisanship and politics of this region of the state. I will point out that uh, Massachusetts, most voters are unenrolled, meaning they are really a member of no party. Uh, so they can go either way and do. Um, so that's important to note. Louise has also note that uh, it, this was the same sheriff who offered uh, to the Trump administration to take his inmates um, and send them down to the border wall to help build it. Yeah, you know, this he reminded me a lot or reminds me a lot of Joe Arpaio, who was the famous Arizona um, <clears throat> sheriff who did this for also like 25 years. And what's interesting in both cases, I think, is that they uh, they were very low visibility folks for a while, and then they started to gain visibility with these antics um, but what's interesting about this and, and what I'm glad to see in terms of the race is that this speaks to a larger uh, issue where crime seems to be at least crime and rhetoric, at least like people bringing this up in ads and things like this. It starts, it seems to be coming back into fashion. And so there's a debate about what to do, uh, you know, should like tough on crime kinds of policies or not. And so this is really um gonna bring, I think, healthy debate as to what you want to do with sheriffs, because sheriffs tend to be, as Shannon pointed out, very low visibility affairs generally, but they're very important. They obviously affect a lot of people. So I think this is great news, and it clearly is a quality challenger. Now, the fact that this has gotten a little partisan 
is not great, but any debate about this is good, I think, in general. Aaron. You know, I concur with my colleagues just digging in, you know, I'm looking at a report or a summary in the Sun Chronicle that um, more than a quarter of all suicides in the state's 13 county jails occurred in Bristol County in the preceding six years, despite this county accounting for just 13% of inmates. So objectively, he's doing his job bad. Um, mm -hmm. There hasn't been improvement on those numbers. Uh, there's been a lot of excessive force complaints. He was um, slow at best to implement COVID protocols. So I think this is a, a another one of these issues, or I should say, you know, uh, elections where he's offering, the two candidates are very, uh, offering very different um, views and takes on criminal justice. If you're not with this sheriff, the concern is he's been there for a long time. Um, and it's sort of not that they're remotely similar, but you know, Bill Calvin's been in office forever. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people run against him and underestimate him because he's built up a lot of quiet favors. Um, and I suspect this sheriff is the same way. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien and Luis Jimenez of UMass Boston and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. I want to take two things together now. Um, two new polls show that Massachusetts Democrats are likely uh, to win in the big races. We're talking uh, governor and um, in Suffolk County, the attorney general. Um, and then there's another piece that questions, okay, so if that turns out to be true, and a lot of the polling is suggesting that it is going to be true, what's the role of the Republican Party in Massachusetts? And I just want to lead in, um, Shannon, with the fact that um, up to this point, a lot of uh, Massachusetts voters have really preferred to have a Republican governor and a Democratic um, legislature. So this will be new. Um, so what is the role of the Republican Party? And what do you think about um, if there is kind of a Democratic route um, in terms of who is elected to most of the constitutional seats, a Democrat in the upcoming election? Shannon. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say, you know, again, I'll sort of try to tie this to political science research, because I think that's partially why we have us here. And, you know, ticket splitting, we tend to think of it as sort of intentional among voters, but often it's really about the choices that they're faced with, right? And so oftentimes people may prefer to vote for an all Republican ticket, but they don't have that, um, or they don't have all Republicans who reflect their balance, so they what they want, so they split their tickets. So, uh, you know, in this race, I think if we see a rise in ticket splitting, it's a reflection of the fact that the voters aren't being given sort of the choices that they want in these races. And I do think that is generally speaking good for the for the Democrats because the state GOP and their um, selection of deal as their, you know, standard bearer has shown that they have gone sort of far to the right. I think that's disappointing. I think research shows that competition is good for democracy. Um, it's good to give voters choices. It's good um, for state legislators, political candidates, officers um, to feel, you know, a little bit nervous about whether or not they're going to keep the seat, because I think in some ways that uh, drives them to be a little bit more accountable to the voters. Um, so I think it's unfortunate. I think that the Republicans haven't been able to, to do more. Um, that also being said, I will say, you know, competition doesn't have to come from the other party. Um, 
but we don't really see challenges, you know, in, within the Democratic Party as well. So Massachusetts does really poorly on political competition, and I, I just don't think that's good for, for our state politics. Okay. Aaron. Picking up on that theme of party competition. So this isn't research on what would the Republican Party do in Massachusetts. Rather, it's research on um, where Democrats and Republicans are um, competitive. States where, purple states, states where, to Shannon's point, uh, the elected official fears a challenge from uh, the other party. What we find is where there is party competition, um, controlling for other factors, that there's less corruption, and uh, candidates are more diverse because corruption, you know, Republicans check Democrats and Democrats uh, check Republicans more so than a bunch of Democrats and a bunch of Republicans. And kind of counterintuitively, when it comes to candidate selection and diversity, um, parties tend to only expand their ranks, um, look for new constituencies and new candidates when they feel an electoral threat. So the, this research suggests that electoral competition and uh, fearing the other party might win is a good thing for, um, can, for, for the state. Now, to Shannon's point, which party? <laughs> uh, I think uh, if uh, all this is complicated by the fact that even though the Mass GOP has held on to the governor's office for a substantial amount of time, you know, Deval Patrick being a notable exception, Moving to the GOP or moving to the Trump style GOP, I think is a long game, but it's not going to bear fruit this go round. Mm -hmm. Louise. Yeah, let me repeat that for anybody that didn't hear that. Competition is good. Competition <laughs> is really, really good. And it is unfortunate that we don't have a, a more competitive GOP because of all the reasons that my colleagues have stated. But part of the problem of, or the reason why the Mass <clears throat> GOP is not as competitive as we noted is because they are nationalizing their brand to one that is not com compatible with Massachusetts, at least not now, um, maybe in the future, like Aaron says in the long run, but right now it's not right. There is no Baker uh, equivalent and they're moving very quickly um, to a Trump controlled uh, or inspired GOP. Hmm. That I think is the trend in, in basically just, I guess in every state. Uh, which is also very unfortunate because then what's happening is your local politics are all national politics instead of national politics being local politics, right? Uh, and so then you're you're adjudicating issues that don't necessarily have much to do with Massachusetts, mm -hmm. but then they become uh, partisan. And so that means that problems that in the past you and I could have maybe thought about and figured out together, or at least you know give and take, now they just become insolvable because we oppose each other so much on partisan level. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Joining me are three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez, also of UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. We're discussing the latest local and national political stories you need to know. Well, Louise, you set me up for the next uh, story, which is local and national. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm referring to the, what the group is now commonly referred to as the Martha's Vineyard immigrants uh, because they were sent on a plane by Governor Ron DeSantis. Turns out uh, they were sent under some shaky circumstances, um, which now uh, has allowed them uh, to be um, 
um, confirmed as the victims, the crime victims. Um, and that then allows them uh, to have a certain kind of visa, which uh, offers them some protection while they continue to seek asylum. Um, that was the opposite of what Governor, Go Governor Ron DeSantis was trying to do, of course. He expected them to arrive on March's Vineyard unexpected, as they did, and have there be a brouhaha, and everybody on March's Vineyard would kick them out, and that he would be able to say, aha, hypocrites, hypocrites, we're, we're down here dealing with the border, and um, you uh, northeastern cities are not, and the, particularly the ones who claim to be sanctuary cities. So that's a little bit of the background of that. So let's bring it up to today. Um, really, very recently, we learned that um, a lot of the those folks that were there were dispersed throughout the state, and now uh, at least a hundred people, a hundred of them, are in a hotel in Kingston. Um, that town did not get very much notice, and the town administrator is a little annoyed uh, by that. Uh, so here <laughs> we are. Um, but the the bottom line is that. Most of the families, I guess a couple of them did return to Martha's Vineyard where there was some space for them. Uh, I need to underscore that the people that took them in are the year-round folks. Do not confuse the island with the rich people who own homes there. And we're not even on the island, really, seriously. Um, these are the people <laughs> who live there year-round. There is one homeless shelter on the on the island and limited resources. So the people have the full understanding of what the scenario is. So, Luis, here we are. This is a local national story. Again, has developed into yeah. great divisive, par uh, bi uh, not uh, bipartisanship, but partisanship, and it's an issue. So, it, let me get your response. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Th this story annoyed me to no end because asylum, well, first of all, we're talking about real people in real circumstances that have in some cases suffered a lot already, even to just to get here, right? So, and those stories are completely lost because then we're talking about Ron DeSantis and what was he trying to do? And was he trying to poke somebody's eye? And, you know, so that's, that's the focus. So that annoys me very much. But then the actual issue of asylum, it's incredibly difficult to get asylum. You have the right to ask for asylum, but uh, you don't have the guarantee that the United States will grant you asylum. And there's no, for these folks, there's no other way to come legally other than to ask for asylum, especially for people like Venezuelans or Cubans or Haitians. Um, it's very difficult. So they're basically doing the only possible thing we've left them to do. And then they get used like political pawns and they end up in these places. And what happened with DeSantis by doing this, he made it so difficult for them to even follow the legal federal guidelines that they can apply for asylum. Um, and it is not the case. So basically this whole thing about how Texas and California or uh, Texas and Arizona or Florida uh, are like overwhelmed with asylum cases is not true. Uh, I mean, they do get lots of asylum cases, but so does New York. So does California. People are getting asylum cases everywhere, but they're getting overwhelmingly so because we make it so difficult for people to do anything else. And we can't have that because we haven't changed the law since 1990 because it's become such a partisan football. And so there's so much to this um, that is that is a problem. But then you end up having a situation where local people have to deal with this, right? With uh, uh, what you mentioned in Kingston, in Martha's Vineyard, these people, you know, like you're trying to help them get fed or or or, or survive. 
Uh, and it is costly. I mean, it is costly to do this, but by having states not cooperating, not coordinating, what you're doing is you're just making it worse for everybody else. All right, um, Aaron. A, I want Luis in charge of this policy issue. Hmm. Um, B, um, and I want to echo some of what he said uh, in my own reactions to this. At first, you know, I read these articles and I thought, oh, this sort of feels good to beat DeSantis. Um, that these individuals got this designation that might make their process easier. And I'm like, that is such the wrong frame that, you know, to Luisa's point, these are humans who have experienced real difficulty to even get to the border. Then they were treated like pawns. Um, and yes, this designation might help their individual cases, but this isn't sustainable. You know, a battle between Florida and Massachusetts isn't what um, immigration policy should be about. Um, but I feel really hopeless, honestly, with this uh, with this issue, because you know we know Biden, uh, and maybe for good reason. I'm not an expert expert in this area, but has sort of capped the number of Venezuelan immigrants, and they have to come by plane as opposed to you know over walking over the border. I mean, that's pretty classist to me. Um, so I, I don't know what the solution is here, but I feel like we're farther than ever because these in, in this policy and to Luisa's earlier point on issue four here, um, you know, these individuals with human stories are being used for political gain. That's happened for years in immigration in the United States, but it seems particularly bad to me right now, especially with Massachusetts in the four. And in the meantime, um, Shannon, there are some real issues that have to be resolved. So uh, in communities like Kingston with the families that have children, the children have to be enrolled in school. Um, in Massachusetts, where affordable housing is so, so uh, unavailable, I think one can say, in most communities, now you're stretching that even more to find some kind of housing uh, for these people who were unceremoniously brought here who have the right to petition, as Louise has said, not the guarantee, um, but something has to happen in the interim. Uh, some of them I note are in, some of the single men I note are in homeless shelters uh, around the state because we do have more than than, than uh, Martha's Vineyard. So this is, you know, real life happening, playing out because we don't have a comprehensive plan, Shannon. Yeah, and you know, it's not just happening here in Massachusetts. So, you know, I was recently out in the Chicago suburbs visiting my mother, um, who volunteers with a group who helps Venezuelan immigrants, you know, asylum seekers in their community. And, you know, while we were there for the weekend, we were on call. We never got the call, but shortly after we left, you know, my mom did. And they went out to meet a busload of, you know, Venezuelan asylum seekers were sent into one of the, you know, local communities every day. There's busloads of people coming into the community and they don't know where to house them. They don't know where, right, similar sorts of problems. And so it just really highlights the need, you know, to echo my colleagues for a comprehensive plan. You know, talking to my mom about it, she was just upset after talking to all these people for days and for weeks, right? And, um, you know, to be treated so inhumanely is is not a good reflection of who we aspire to be, I think, as a country. It, will this force some kind of plan from Congress? Might not be comprehensive. No. Okay. No. no. All righty. The reason why there hasn't been, and, they, and it hasn't been for decades now, it's been two decades now, is because, mainly because the Republicans have the incentive to not do it. 
but also because Democrats, whenever the opportunity has shown up, they have been scared because it's easy to manipulate. Like the idea that, you know, like what Shannon just said, like there's busloads of people coming to our community. She just said that she's meant it in a neutral way. But to some people, that sounds like the word, like it sounds like what they say. They sounds like an invasion, right? There's all these people, oh my God, they're coming. And so that's scary and it's easy to manipulate. And so there's no incentive on either side really uh, to break the impasse right now. At least, the, well, the Democrats don't have the numbers anyway, but Republicans, they get a lot of mileage out of this, a lot. So two things. Um, one, I want to note that a number of of, of um, possible solutions that were a long, long time ago supported in a bipartisan way were initially suggested by Republicans. I mean, that's part of this history, which makes it so weird to be in this space now. Um, yeah. And as you say, Luis, to get mileage out of something that, you know, they proposed many of the folks yeah, that were yeah. there were in the space. The second thing I would ask is um, what's the political fallout of this? Um, because will we see that in this upcoming election or is it just sort of on the back burner? You know, we've seen how um, in recent polling, very recent polling, that fear of crime is driving a lot of voters uh, decisions. And while I think it's objectively false, immigrants are, are not more likely to be criminal or anything like that. I think what we're seeing is immigration is a political symbol that it, it, there is no incentive right now to get done. So I, I, I don't think anything will happen. And I think that fear of crime used to be a proxy for black white relations. I think fear of crime is now becoming a secondary measure of uh, immigration. Uh, you know, to Luis's point that the, the, they're coming, um, that sort of fear politic, that fear of others. So I think it's being picked up in this election there as well with totally overt immigrants are the problem, blah, 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 a la Donald Trump. Hmm. Shannon? So I will just say that as long as the filibuster survives, we will not have movement on immigration. Mm -hmm. I do think the Democrats generally are willing um, to revisit immigration policy um, if they have majorities without a filibuster, um, because it doesn't require huge expenditures of political capital to get immigration done without right. a filibuster. Um, but with the filibuster, the amount of political capital required to to change immigration policy is just insurmountable. Um, so I would agree with Louise that I think it's not likely to happen unless we get rid of the filibuster. That's a fair point. And let me, let me finalize this by saying that even if we had a perfect scenario where there was no filibuster and Democrats or Republicans or whatever said, okay, we're gonna fix this. The problem is immigration is a complicated issue because you're talking about future human flows not just the present ones. And so whatever we're trying to fix, we're trying to fix something that's already happened, but then there's things that happen in the future, right? That you can't foresee. That's part of the problem with immigration because the, the, what the immigration uh, system that works right now was based on things we were talking about in the 70s and the 80s, right? And so these things change and because they change, they always are almost always late. Hmm. Well, coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. We're examining local and national political stories in advance of the November 8th election. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien and Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. Let's pick up where we left off. I'm going to switch to national, national um, stories. Um, one that is concerning to me, election workers leaving their jobs. Now, during the January 6th um, hearings, we heard from some election workers who were harassed, um, some threatened. So obviously we can understand that. But the pressures are so great on these election workers that a lot of them are just saying it's not worth it. I should also note that for some time we've relied on uh, seniors, I would say, who have a great interest in, in doing these jobs to do the work, though there had been some success in getting some young people at the table. Either way, a lot of them are leaving because they say it's just it's too much. Um, there's just too much vitriol coming their way for just doing the job of, of serving the public in on this day. I'll start with you, Aaron. What do you say about that? Well, it's frightening. Um, you know, as you said, the, these are uh, older. This is sort of the League of Women Voters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they care about civic participation. They're there not to say Republicans, yes, Democrats, no, or the inverse. They're there to make sure our elections run smoothly. And they, most of them have, a, the vast, vast majority, have approached their job as a service to the polity, to democracy. And I'm concerned if they're leaving for two reasons. One, they've got a ton of experience. You know, if things go wrong anywhere you work or in any big activity. And if you've got people who have been there 15, 20, 25 years, you can look to them and say, how did you fix this last time? So just the institutional knowledge of a bureaucracy, if you're losing um, the most knowledgeable and effective workers, that's, that's hard for the bureaucracy to work. And then even more frightening is that strong, if strong partisans are going in. If you've got people going in with the orientation that um, elections are biased against Republicans, um, and how can I make sure that my candidate isn't disadvantaged here? That's a very, that is not a public service, that is self-interest. And to have those individuals in is, um, you know, we worry a a lot about uh, threats to democracy. This is another one. Uh, The American system is difficult with elections, that each locality runs their elections a little different. That actually is a guard against electoral fraud because it's almost impossible to have a plan that infiltrates all these little polling districts, et cetera. This is a way it could be done. Okay, Uh, Shannon. I would like to, this is deeply alarming to me, but I would also say that it's not just election workers and town clerks and volunteers who are being driven out. It's across local government. Um, you know, in my spare time, I am on a local school committee um, and starting, you know, around 2016, but particularly picked up with the pandemic. Um, it has gotten really nasty. We've gotten some really, really, really nasty emails, almost and always anonymously generated. Um, and I worry about, you know, with local government, not just for voting, but also being sort of the foundation of our democracy, um, that good people are being driven out of, um, of, of local politics. 
Um, and it's not, I, I don't, by good people, I don't mean Democrats, right? I mean, reasonable people across all, across the entire political spectrum are being driven out because these are volunteer gigs for the most part, right? And, you know, when I volunteer my time, I want to feel good about, right, the volunteer work that I am doing. And when it's endless headaches, um, I think you start to see people changing where they choose to give their time. And that's a real problem for our democracy um, across the board in local politics. Mm. Louise. Yeah, no, it's, it's extremely frightening. It's, one, it's probably the biggest threat right now because, so we know in elections, any election, this, by the way, is across the world, but in the United States, there has always been mistakes in elections. Why? Because people carry them out. It's people that are doing this. They're not machines. They're not perfect. So there's always going to be bound like a mistake, heel of mistake and over their mistake. They have never changed any outcome for any election because it's just, you know, one thing or another. Uh, but when you have people that are not supposed to be, or rather when you have people that are less experienced and or partisans, these kinds of mistakes are going to be, are going to become, you know, they're going to be on Fox News or they're going to be on social media or whatever. They're going to be expanded more. And so even if you don't completely lose the, let's say the good folks or the good people that are doing this completely, you are going to lose faith in elections, which, I mean, is there anything worse than that? If people don't actually believe that their vote counts or that they can vote to change whatever is happening, um, then things get really nasty. They could get violent, which is what, I, as a Latin American scholar, I know this happens a lot. Um, but not necessarily always violent and like revolution kind of thing, but you know, uh, smaller uh, things that that start slow and then starts to expand, and also or people just don't vote anymore, and that's also bad. Uh, and and the thing is, I'm not so sure how to put the genie back in the box. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult because once you start out with this, and obviously Republicans feel like they're getting a lot of leverage out of this, or at least the Trumps of the world, um, it's really hard to put it back in and get people involved. So it's a problem. It's definitely a problem. And um, sadly, we're about to lose Louise Jimenez, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Um, he has to leave us a bit early. Thank you so much for joining us, Louise. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. All right. So we're going to continue. Um, Shannon and Aaron, Shannon of UMass Dartmouth and Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, uh, with some other national issues of note. Um, let's talk about the January 6th, uh, the last uh, committee meeting. It was a doozy. Um, it was postponed, as some may remember, because of the hurricane impact in Fort Myers, Florida. Then they regrouped a couple days later. And uh, at the end of the session, decided that the important thing to do was to issue a subpoena to former President Trump. Uh, let's take a listen. Committee Resolution 1 resolved that the chairman be and is hereby directed to subpoena Donald J. Trump for documents and testimony in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol pursuant to Section 5C4 of House Resolution 503 and Clause 2M of Rule 11 of the Rules of the House of Representatives. The gentlewoman from Wyoming is recognized on her resolution. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, our committee now has sufficient information to answer many of the critical questions posed by Congress at the outset. We have sufficient information to consider criminal referrals for multiple individuals. 
and to recommend a range of legislative proposals to guard against another January 6th. But a key task remains. We must seek the testimony under oath of January 6th central player. More than 30 witnesses in our investigation have invoked their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And several of those did so specifically in response to questions about their dealings with Donald Trump. Well, Shannon, um, they issued the subpoena. Word on the street is that um, he, the lawyers anyway, have to respond um, by next week. I think it's November the 4th. Um, but also word on the street is that nobody thinks that he'll end up testifying. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing about all of this around, you know, January 6th, this issue in particular, but the hearings in general, it's a big deal. I mean, it's a really big deal about what happened on January 6th and the information that's being uncovered. It's a big deal. I don't want to minimize that. Yet it has not moved public opinion in, in really any significant way. Um, and I don't think the subpoena will move public opinion. Um, I don't think the fight over whether her testify will move public opinion. Um, ultimately, if he does testify, I'm sure he'll probably take the fifth throughout. And um, it will also not move public opinion, um, which is also we're getting, I don't know, we're sort of stuck on really depressing topics today. Um, <laughs> but this was this was a really big deal. And it's just depressing to me as someone who studies American democracy, um, the lack of concern in some places about what actually happened that day. Um, and do you think that legally um, he will be able to not testify? I mean, this is a legal subpoena. Yes, he can protest it, but, you know, as we've seen, there have been a few people who did that who were in his administration and um, either paid a price, um, one of them was Steve Bannon, or they had to come in and testify. Um, Mark Meadows. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's ultimately six to one, half dozen to the other, because if he is forced to testify, he'll come in and he'll take the fifth. Oh, right? He's not going to say anything. All right, Aaron, what do you say? I mean, I... There is reporting that Donald Trump, and I listen to this reporting with a skeptical face, <laughs> uh, that Donald Trump does want to testify. He does want to come in, but he wants it live. That, you know, how the, the, if you've been watching the January 6th hearings, they um, do these interviews and they use elements of those interviews. They go to the tape in a very packaged, into my mind, effective way. Mm -hmm. um, but do I believe Donald Trump when he says that? I don't know. I'm skeptical. So, uh, but it would be, you know, uh, it would be something to watch. Now, do in terms of the legal case, this is where politics and um, the legal cases run up against each other. Uh, the, the subpoena has been issued um, and modern uh, former presidents, two of three did testify when they were subpoenaed, but Truman was the last one to be testified by the House uh, Un-American Committee um, and he did not respond to their subpoena. So like legally there is um, precedent for responding and not responding because the president has a different set of standards they're arguing than um, Steve Bannon. But if, it go, if the election goes, as many think, self-included, that the House uh, will flip to the Republicans, that means that the committee really only has until the beginning of January to make noise on this. 
The good news though, is that once the subpoena is issued, it goes to the courts. So this might be something that gets decided a year and a half from now. Mm -hmm. And yes, Donald Trump has to um, testify to a committee that doesn't exist. So I think ultimately the clock helps Donald Trump and his team if he chooses not to testify. Mm -hmm. Um, And back to your, both of your points that it seems not to have stirred a level of either concern is such a small word, I guess, outrage and really fear because this is fundamentally democratic, small D issues um, on the line here. Will that change? What, what, um, at any point, or you think people are just now concretized in their positions on this? I mean, I think that's the hope, right? That's why this committee, uh, current public opinion doesn't mean that that is future public opinion, though it's a pretty good barometer. But, you know, January 6th, they've been very clear in some of their testimony that, yes, they wanted to change public opinion, but more important, they want to have a record. They want this documented. They want future generations, hopefully, who are still living in a democracy, and I don't say that lightly, that um, this is evidence that is fully documented, that um, a revisionist history can't come along and say this was different. So there's been times in American history that we seem to be at an impasse and it broke. Mm -hmm. We're all just waiting for it to break and evidence to matter again. Okay. Well, let's move on to uh, something that... um ramped up after the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court. That was a decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. And as we've seen um, in the primaries, that had a great impact uh, politically in some areas. Uh, Now, some of the um, political analysts seem to think that it has, some of that impact is waned in terms of people saying that this is a number one issue for them because inflation has taken over. Be that as it may, there are super PACs that have put a lot of money um, into both sides to persuade um, uh, anti-abortionists and um, uh, those women who are for choice uh, to try to bring out their bases. So I first want to play a couple of clips back to back so you get a sense of what's going on nationally. Then we can talk about where uh, the super PACs are spending this money, and the super PACs are Emily's List and Planned Parenthood Action on one side. On the other side is National Right to Life Committee and Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. All right, so this is the ad for Planned Parenthood votes. Hey, Mom, can we talk for a second? Oh, hi, honey, can we chat tonight? I'm running late for work. I'm pregnant. Now is also a great time. I've thought about this a lot, and I'm not ready. I want to finish college. I called Dr. Morgan about getting an abortion. Honey, whatever you want to do, I'll... don't get to decide. Your future is Mom? Not her body. Your body isn't yours. The decision isn't up to you. You don't have the right to decide your future. It isn't your body. You don't have the right. Our politicians will decide. It isn't your body. It isn't your body. Your future isn't yours. Stop! They don't get to decide for me. All right, that's the ad from Planned Parenthood Votes. Um, Here's an ad from Mississippi Republican incumbent Michael Guest, who in it is um, underscoring his 100% pro-life rating from the National Right to Life Committee. I'm Michael Guest, and I approve this message. 
I'm honored to serve as your congressman. The National Right to Life Committee has given me a 100% pro-life score. And the Susan B. Anthony List has given me an A-plus rating for my work in Congress on pro-life issues. Now more than ever, it's important we speak up for the unborn and support the right to life. Okay, so um, in Emily's List and Planned Parenthood Action, I'm grouping them together. These are the PACs uh, for pro-choice. Uh, I've spent about $6 million in key battleground states and um National Right to Life and Susan B. Anthony have spent about $3 million. Uh, first of all, had, is this advertising having any impact? Where do we think this issue is at this point in terms of driving people to the polls and specifically uh, to voting? I'll start with you, Erin. This advertising is attempting to have an impact. Um, the concern for Democrats is that uh, since the summer, the Dobbs decision has fallen off the radar a bit. Women are still angry about it, but women also buy groceries and get gas. And that's really expensive right now. And so what these advertising is trying to do on the Democratic side, where there is a lot more money on this, is to prime voters, to remind them that out of, you know, your daughter isn't going to get to make the decision, some guy is. Um, and so that's what the advertising is trying to do, because Democrats, if abortion is at the top one, two or three issues um, in voters mind when they go to vote, Democrats are going to do well. Republicans are going to do well if abortion is something they care about, but it's fallen to six, seven. Um, so the advertising, I can't say right now whether it's having impact, but that's why they're running the ads to put it in the top of voters' brain, to make it a top order consideration when voters go to the polls. Shannon? Yeah, I'll also argue that I agree there, but it's also too about, about mobilization, right? I mean, and that's, I think, really what, what, what we see in elections um, is that um, it's about getting your voters out into the polls. Um, and so these ads are deeply emotional Right, and they try to evoke those those feelings, right, um, that activate people to engage in politics. Um, and you know, abortion is. We've talked about. Aaron talked about this earlier. We can talk about it in the context of abortion, in the context of the ballot questions, right? Values, right? When you can activate people's values, that can be very effective in getting them to engage in politics. And so the Democrats very much are trying to activate emotions and values on this issue um, because it advantages them. And they're trying to make this, to Aaron's point, a top issue to get their voters to the polls um, on Election Day, um, particularly in, you know, maybe we'll talk about this, maybe we won't, um, but Gen Z voters um, who, who appear to be sort of very mobilized and activated by this issue in particular. Well, well, I'll be interested to see, um, you know, what happens at, at the polls with this, because uh, it's not clear to me that that Gen Zers, to your point, are driving this. I mean, I think they kind of get it, but it seems to me that what I've heard mostly, and maybe it's just the bubble I'm living in, are mostly uh, women who know what it means to have lost this. Yes, but I will also say those are mostly women who already voted. Yeah. Right. Okay, and okay. Whereas Gen Z is, is less likely to vote. And so to the extent that you can activate their emotions about this, um, that drives up turnout among groups of people. Right. The key now is driving up turnout among groups of people who are not reliable voters. 
Um, and I think that's part of what Democrats are trying to do with this. Yes, go ahead, Aaron. And I'm just, uh, I guarantee, and I don't guarantee much. <laughs> I guarantee if Republicans um, take the House and if Republicans, especially if they take the Senate, but even if they just take the House, um, there will be top level headlines saying abortion didn't matter. Mm. Women weren't mobilized mm. by uh, abortion. Dobbs doesn't affect our politics, which is so I was going to say something else. So <laughs> incorrect in his run. Why are we holding women um, individually that they have to be solo issue uh, voters? And that's all that they care about. Okay. Can I also, yes. can I elaborate on that? What Aaron said a little bit too. I, I want to focus on the women part of it, right? Um, and political science research is pretty clear that that abortion, in, surprisingly, is not an issue where there are large gender differences in yep. opinion. There's maybe some emerging evidence that post-Dobbs, there may be some divergence, but really the important distinctions are on party lines here. Um, and so um, it's also unfair to, to say, not only say that abortion uh, didn't matter. It's unfair to say that abortion didn't matter for women um, because this isn't an issue that divides men and women. And to be blunt, it's an issue that also affects men, maybe not as deeply or personally be, you know, um, at, than women, but um, it does affect them as well. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Always. It's an exciting conversation with you all. And um, I will just tell our listening audience that I look forward to having another conversation with you after the election. But for right now, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Catherine Hurley. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.